I realize that some of you are not sports fans at all, and so please show me some grace as I begin this message with a sports analogy. How many sports fans do we have in the audience? Okay, good, all right, good. Um, I mean real sports fans, some of you like real sports fans, okay. Fans who faithfully follow your team. You root for them, you wear their colors or jerseys, uh, you watch your team on TV or you go to the game to see it live whenever you can. I mean, you're a fan of your sports team. It's, it's relatively easy to be a fan though, isn't it? It's really easy to be a fan because, I mean, you, it's easy to get caught up in becoming a fan or a fanatic. Well, so many other people are doing it. It's not like you're the only one. There are a lot of other people that are wearing the jerseys and the colors and rooting on your team. And here's what's crazy about being a fan. You don't even need to ever have ever played the sport in your entire life to be a fan of that sport. To be a fan, you never have to put on a uniform. I mean, you might wear a fake one, but you don't have to put on a real uniform. You never have to go to practice. You never have to step onto the playing field. You don't even need to know all the rules and regulations of the game or the team that you cheer on. All you have to do to be a fan is to cheer on your team, watch some games on TV or live in the stadium. You see, it's one thing to cheer on your team, but it's another thing to actually contribute to the outcome of your team's game. The same can be said for some members in the local church. They are fans of Jesus. They are fans of their local church. They show up and they cheer during the worship service like we just did. They shout hallelujah, amen, you go. Some of them, these fans in the church, they even give regularly and generously to keep the doors of the church open and the team on the field. But they have no interest in suiting up in uniform and stepping onto the field to play the game. Now, don't get me wrong, we need to cheer each other on. And we all need to financially support the missional effort. But another key ingredient for success is that everyone participates in the mission. Everyone on the playing field. There's a place for everyone on the playing field. It's not like sports where you gotta have a bench because not everybody can be on the court or the field at once. It's not like that when it comes to the ministry of the gospel in the local church. And so everyone on the playing field, it's a team effort. Let's just think about our immediate mission field of Uptown. Our neighborhood of Uptown is just about 2.3 square miles. And within that 2.3 square mile radius, we have about 55,000 neighbors. Think about it, 2.3 square miles, 55,000 neighbors living right here in Uptown. Walking distance from our front doors of our church. 
And each neighbor has been created by God and has a beautiful soul that would live forever somewhere. Median income of our uptown neighbor is about $45,000. That means there are some neighbors who are richer than that and some who are poorer than that, but the average uptown neighbor earns about $45,000. 45% of our uptown neighbors are of the lighter hue. That means they're white. 28% of our uptown neighbors are of the darker hue. Those are our black neighbors in uptown. About 13% of our uptown neighbors are Hispanic. That's the wrong folk. And then you got the 12% who are Asian. Now in just a few, last few years, developers have been building and are still building 1,200 new units of what I call unaffordable housing right here in uptown. I mean, right across the street from our church is the newest example. Luxury apartments, upshore luxury apartments. I looked them up this week, went on their website just to, I was curious to know how much are they renting those luxury apartments for. Well, if your money ain't funny and your change ain't strange, you can rent a small two-bedroom, two-bath apartment on the seventh floor for about $2,700 a month. Less than 1,000 square feet, by the way. Two bedrooms, two baths, $2,700 a month. But if your money is funny and your, strength, your change is strange, you can get a little teeny studio apartment for $1,400 a month. Our immediate mission field is one of the most ethnically and socioeconomically diverse neighborhoods in all the 77 neighborhoods in Chicago. Shouldn't it then be our goal to reflect all of that diversity of our neighborhood in our local church? After all, Jesus came and died for all of us, right? And it's going to take all of us each one of us praying and serving and working together to reach our new neighbors and those who've been here for a while. And as we will see today in our text, there was a desperate man, desperate man who had a desperate, he had some desperate friends who did whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. This account found in the Gospel of Luke leaves me wondering if I had the same urgency about getting my lost friends and neighbors and family members to Christ. If I had that same urgency, would they now already be saved? It leaves me wondering if we, all of us, each of us had the same urgency to bring people to Christ, wouldn't we do whatever it takes? Would there be already so many more souls saved and baptized and added to the church. I wish all of you could come up here from my vantage point and see all the empty chairs across the auditorium where some of those 55,000 residents of Uptown should be sitting, but they're not. And even if all the churches in Uptown that had empty seats like ours were filled, there'd still be tens of thousands of people that wouldn't have a church to go to in uptown if they wanted to. Because there aren't enough 
worship services in Uptown on a Sunday morning that could hold 55,000 people. And so there's a lot of work to do just in the neighborhood of Uptown, let alone going off to Mexico or to Tanzania. But God has called us to go everywhere, first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the othermost parts of the world. So now let's look in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. Luke 5, 17. The gospel says, One day as he was teaching, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there. The he that was teaching is Jesus. And the power of the Lord was present for him, Jesus, to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins besides God? Jesus knew what they were thinking and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been laying on, and went home praising God. And everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen a remarkable. You know, every storyline has a character or characters, and different characters grab your attention in different ways. Today, we're going to focus on these friends. I count five different characters in the story. First, there are some men, then there is the paralytic, then there's Jesus, and then there's the crowd, and then there are the Pharisees and teachers of the law. I'll count them as one character and all what characters they were. I want to start our focus on these men. It seems like these men were on a mission and that they would not be deterred. They were mission-driven men. For the last 40 or 50 years, most companies in our country and around the world have realized the value of having a mission a and, a, and a vision statement or a mission statement. And that mission ensures that all their employees are working in line to fulfill that mission. For example, the mission statement of Instagram is to capture and share the world's moments. The mission of Facebook is a media platform for your grandma to keep up with your children. That's Facebook's mission. Plainly stated. A mission statement helps everyone know what you're about. It helps everyone in your organization stay on track to accomplish the mission together. What's your life's mission? Do you have one? Jesus had a mission. He clearly stated in Luke 19.10, he said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. Did you know that 
You were made for a mission. You have a unique purpose for living on this earth. Do you know what it is? Is that thing. That's what it is. Your mission is that thing, that longing that God has put in your heart to see it accomplished in your lifetime. And the question is, does your mission ever coincide with Jesus' mission, or is it only related to the trivial earthly pursuits? These men in our text had a mission. They had a longing in their heart to see their friend heal and be able to walk. That was their mission. They had heard that there was a miracle worker coming through town, and they were willing to make whatever sacrifice and do whatever needed to be done to get their friend in front of Jesus. Do you see that in verse 19? But when they could not get to Jesus, at least the traditional way they would normally get to Jesus, because of the crowds, these men went rogue. These crazy men climbed up onto the roof, dug a hole in the roof, hoisted their friend up onto the roof, and then lowered their friend through the hole on the roof right down in front of Jesus. Can you imagine that? You're in church. The place is jam-packed. Not a seat empty like we have empty seats here today. Just imagine this place, wall-to-wall, jam-packed, standing room only. You get there early because you know that's how it's going to be. Like some of you who go to concerts, you get there early because you want a good seat. Right? Some of you stay overnight, camp out, do whatever it takes because you're going into that concert. And you're not going to be relegated to the back. You want front row. So, you show up to church, you get in your seat where you would like to sit. The preacher is preaching, you're busy taking notes, you're drinking it all in. Suddenly you see some stuff beginning to float down from the seat. You're trying not to get too distracted because you're home there and what the preacher's saying, but then you feel like dirt and sand is falling on your head. You look up and what do you see? What in the world is going on? And before you know it, dude is being lowered down from the ceiling and will soon be occupying a seat on the floor blocking your view. And you're like, oh no, he didn't. No, no, he didn't. Dude is rude. I'm trying to pay attention here. Hello? First of all, these men had a mission. Secondly, these men had eager expectation. Nobody does what they did unless they had some expectation of healing. They had an expectation after their sacrificial work to get their friend in front of Jesus that just maybe he might be healed. Think about it. We don't know from how far away they traveled. They didn't have an ambulance. But even if they were in the neighborhood, it was a hassle for them to carry that man. He was lame. He couldn't walk for himself. They had to try fighting through the crowd only to realize that it wasn't going to work. There is no way in the world we're going to get in front of Jesus. Then they went up on the roof and hauled their lame friend up on the roof. Now, I didn't mean lame friend as in no good. Lame, I mean, he couldn't walk. All right? And then they destroyed the roof of what was probably some stranger's house. And probably had to get the bill for that. 
or fix it themselves if they knew how to patch up roofs. You talk about personal sacrifice. Who does this unless you have some expectation that after all that hard work and personal sacrifice, it's going to pay off, right? What are your expectations do you have for our Lord Jesus Christ to heal and to save your lost friends, neighbors, and co-workers and family members? Maybe you've given up long ago. You used to pray for them. You used to try to invite them to church. You used to try to share the gospel with them, but you gave up. You ran into the obstacles, the crowds, the roadblocks, which is what the crowds represent in this text. What eager expectations do you have of the Lord Jesus Christ to still heal and forgive sins? If and when you take risks to share your testimony and to share your Christian faith with lost people, do you expect that the Holy Spirit of Christ will use you to lead somebody else to faith in Jesus Christ. Do you really have that expectation still today? If you and I have no expectation or we have low expectation of Christ, then that says way more about us than it says about Him. May God increase our faith and trust in the Holy Spirit to be at work in our lives and in the lives of lost people all around us so that we might seek to influence them for Christ. See, these men were on a mission and they had eager expectations. Notice how Jesus commends their faith. The scripture says, when Jesus saw their faith, now that's faith in action. These men had a kind of faith that you could see. When Jesus saw the faith of these friends, he forgave their paralytic friend of his sins and, they he, and he healed his paralysis. My Christian brothers and sisters, do you have that kind of faith? That persistent, expecting, expecting faith? That's the kind of faith that James spoke of in his letter to the first century church when he says in James 2.18, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Does your faith move you with enough compassion to bring lost people to Jesus Christ? The kind of faith that these men had is the eager expectation that God will use your kind, loving, evangelistic efforts for the salvation of the lost. Third, things got twisted for these men. That's the third thing I want you to see in this deck. Things got a little twisted for these men. Have you ever been trying to do something good for yourself or others when things get twisted? And you're like, really? Really, God? Don't you see I'm just trying to get myself together? I, can't you see I'm just trying to help somebody else for a change? Work with me, Lord. Please, work with me. Why can't it be easy when I'm trying to do good? You ever trying to do good and you find out it's harder than doing wrong? And you're scratching your head. You're like, God, work with me a little bit. I'm trying to do good for a change here. Seems like things are getting more twisted when I'm trying to do good than when I'm out doing wrong. These men were on a faith mission on behalf of their paralytic friend. All was going well until they got close. They were all so close, but yet so far. 
they ran into the crowds. We know something about crowds here in Chicago, don't we? In rush hour, there are crowds on the train, crowds on the bus, crowds on the highways, crowds on the local church, I mean the local roads. If you want to see the 4th of July fireworks on the lakefront, you're going to be there with a million other of your closest friends. If you want to get close to the air and water show in August, you're looking at a million other people that you're going to try to fight to get to the lakefront so you can get your seat on the, on the lakefront to see the air and water show, right? Some of you went to Taste of Chicago. You better taste something before you get to the taste because you're going to be a while before you can taste the food down there. <laughs> Waiting those long lines. After you pay your $20 to get in, and you have to make three payments before it's yours after you get your food. See, the crowd became an obstacle in the way of the faith mission that these men had to get their friend the help he desperately needed. And as I read this gospel account, I'm thinking, whatever happened to when I see sirens and lights, I pull over to the right. I mean, that would have been a nice thing to happen on this day, right? I guess these men had no sirens in life and the crowds were not very sympathetic to their plight. But these men were not discouraged to the point of giving up. They didn't give up. They didn't turn back. No. Instead, they looked up. They looked up and they had an idea and they made a plan and then they worked the plan. They were determined not to let anything or anyone get in the way of their mission. How about you? Are you easily discouraged when it comes to sharing your salvation story with others? Have you found yourself too timid when it comes to inviting someone to church? What are the obstacles that keep you from humble obedience to Christ on this issue? What keeps you from bringing lost people to Christ? Is it fear? Fear of what they might think or say about you? Do you fear even what they might do to you? In the book of Acts, we read how the apostles were mistaken as drunks when they stood up to proclaim the gospel on the day of Pentecost. They were ridiculed and made fun of. Some thought that they were crazy fools. But the first century believers were not easily dissuaded by what non-believers thought or said about them. That didn't shut them up. They kept bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who were lost. They determined that the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the lost condition of unbelieving souls were more important than their ego. You also read in the book of Acts and the New Testament epistles that the apostles and the disciples were persecuted for their faith. Beyond the words that may have hurt their egos, unbelievers did bodily harm to them and their families. Some believers were put in prison. Some lost their jobs. Some were publicly beaten with whips. And some were burned alive. Others were thrown into ancient stadiums called coliseums with very hungry, wild animals that tore them to shreds. But even the fear of persecution did not shut them up. You say, what in the world compelled these ancient Christians to be such bold, faithful witnesses? I think it was the same virtues that compelled the persecuted Christians 
today. Number one, the truth of the gospel. The gospel is true. It is the truth. Number two, the, their own changed lives. I mean, their personal experience with the righteous, holy God who loves them despite their sin and forgave them and accepts them radically changed their lives. And they wanted that change in the wider culture of lost people. Number three, the example of our Lord Jesus Christ himself, whom the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Number four, 1 John 14, 4, 18 says this, there is no fear in love. Furthermore, but perfect love, what? Drives out or casts out fear. I want to suggest to you that when you and I become gripped with fear, so much so that fear becomes your obstacle to bringing people to Jesus, ask yourself the following questions. Number one, is the gospel still true? Is the gospel that I believe, is it true? Are unbelievers still forever lost and destined to hell without Christ? Is that true? Is Jesus really the only way, truth, and life? Is that true? If so, the Spirit of Christ lives in you and the love of Christ compels you to love others by sharing your salvation story with others. Number two, another question to ask, was your life really changed by the gospel? Was it really changed? If so, you ought to be like, well, if God can change me, he can certainly change my neighbor. If God can change me, he can change my husband, my kids, my sister, my brother, that mean old boss. God can change him or her. If the gospel changed your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, certainly it can change others. If so, if your life was really changed, you would want to share. Number three, did Jesus really die on the cross for sinners like you and me? Did he really rise from the dead? These are questions we ought to ask. See, if, that, if those two questions are true, did he, Jesus did die on the cross? Yes. He did rise from the dead? Yes. If that's true, then we have resurrection power living inside of us that will compel us to go and convince others to believe the gospel. Number four, have you been smitten by the love of God? Have you been smitten by the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord? Is your heart full of Christ's love? If so, then you will be full of love, full of the love of Christ. And the love for Christ and for the lost. Let me say that again. If your heart is full of Christ's love, you will be full of love for Christ and love for the lost. And you will not allow any obstacle, including fear, to stand in your way of sharing Christ with others. Have you ever heard the story of Jim Thorpe? Jim Thorpe was the Native American Olympian athlete who competed in the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm, Sweden. When he woke up in the morning, 
of his competition, he was a track and field athlete, he discovered to his horror that his one and only pair of track shoes were missing. Apparently they were stolen. He searched everywhere in his room, he went throughout the, the Olympic Village looking for it. Finally, he said, let me just look in the garbage. Maybe I can find some other discarded shoes to run with. I can't run barefooted. Think about the fear and the anxiety that would grip your heart at that moment if you were Jim Thorpe. After all the years of training, all the blood, sweat, and tears in preparation for the biggest world stage of sports, only to be sabotaged on the morning you're about to compete. How in the world could you go on? I mean, you, most of us will be so gripped with fear and anger, paralyzed by it. You know what Jim Thorpe did? He went looking in the garbage cans throughout the Olympic Village. He found two different pair, two different shoes, worn out shoes, that somebody had thrown away. One left foot, one right foot, two different shoes, two different sizes. One he had to squeeze into, barely fit. The other one was too big. So he padded the shoe with putting on a couple pairs of socks. Later that day, Jim Thorpe entered his competition and brought home two gold medals. <laughs> That's crazy, right? He could have been gripped and paralyzed by fear, anger, disappointment, and discouragement. But for the love of the games, for the sake of his mission, he persevered, undeterred, ran his race, and brought home the gold. Hebrews 12, 1 and 3 says this. To the believers who are Olympic athletes for Christ. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, including fear, and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. And consider him, namely Jesus Christ, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. As you think about your one that you've written down on your card, and if you weren't here last week, and you're here this week, in your bulletin is a who's your one card. And we're encouraging you, challenging you to think about the one person that you, it's in your life that needs to know the Lord the most. They're in your orbit of influence. And God wants to use you to share the gospel with them that they might be saved. Consider him, Christ, who endured such opposition so that you won't grow weary. Think about your one. What would it look like for you to dig a hole in the roof to get him or her to Jesus Christ? Finally, these men in our text got more than they bargained for. They got more than they hoped for. Last point. Remember their mission was a possible miraculous healing for their paralytic friend. That was their mission. But Christ is so gracious. He almost always gives us more than we can think or imagine. More than we need. Oh, as we can clearly see, Christ gave them exactly what they had hoped for healing, but then he gave them more. He gave them what they desperately worked for, 
The paralytic man got up and took up his mat and left, praising God. You see that in verse 25. But in verse 20, we see that it's not where Jesus started the conversation. They came desperate, yet hopeful for physical healing. But Jesus began with, your sins are forgiven. Say what? Who said anything about sin? No, 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 Dr. Jesus. I'm here for the religion. I'm not here for the religious service. I'm here because I want to walk. I didn't come to you asking anything about sin. I'm not here confessing my sin to you, Jesus. I'm here because I need to get healed. I want to walk. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know you want to walk. I'm going to fix it so that you can walk in righteousness. Oh, I know you want to walk. And you're going to walk in a right relationship with God first so that you can walk in a right relationship with yourself and with mankind. See, Jesus almost always gives us more than we bargain for. UBC family, hasn't that been your experience with Jesus? One of our new members was beaming this morning like a Cheshire cat today when we greeted each other. She said, Pastor, I'm so happy. I asked her how she was doing. She said, I'm so happy. She says, God has done something in me since I joined this church that I never thought possible. And I'm like, what is that? She says, he's opened my heart to be close to church people like you. I've never been so close, even to church people. I've never been so close. And I feel like I'm your family. She says, I was telling my daughter all about it. And she's here beaming like a, like a Cheshire cat. I couldn't believe it. Well, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I've seen God do miracles. <laughs> Listen. God will always do more than you bargain for. And notice, he doesn't ignore the perceived problem. I got issues, you got issues, we all got issues, right? God is not unconcerned about our felt needs, our issues that, that we bring to the church or we bring to Him. But He always wants to do a greater work. You see, the perceived needs that we all have are really symptoms of the greater need that we have. The greater need that we have is always a sin issue. It's always a relationship issue between us and him and us with each other. That's, that's always the issue. Yeah, I got cancer. Yeah, I, I got money issues. Yeah, I got, but, and God says, I got you. I can help you with that. That's not unimportant, but let me help you with the greater thing. And that's why we as a church must always be sensitive to the felt needs in our community. That's the reason why, as John mentioned, we're spending $15,000 to put in a well for a bunch of people we don't know 6,000 miles away because they're thirsty and they have to walk five, 10 miles a day with a five gallon bucket on their head and it's the women and children doing that to get water that they can cook with and clean with and take a bath in and wash dishes and do all the things because they have no running water. So we don't ignore that and say, sit down here, let me talk to you about Jesus. No. We said, we're going to get you some water, but oh, 
while we're talking about this water, let me tell you about the living water. Because you got some thirsty souls that is, a, is really the bigger issue than the thirsty palate. The thirsty palate is a symptom of the greater reality of the thirsty soul. So while we're quenching your palate, we're going to tell you about the one who quenched our soul. And who can quench your soul too. And so it's not an either or, it's always a both hand with Jesus. It's always a both hand. So yes, let's love people. Let's love them. Let's try to meet their needs. But let's always remember, those needs are symptomatic of the greater reality, the greater needs. That's always a spiritual issue. Spiritual need. A man visiting today said to me when I greeted him, he said, I would tell him, thank you for being here. He said, yeah, I'm glad to be here. Maybe I can get my soul saved today. Well, today is your day. Today is your day. If you're here today and you say, I'm not sure that if I were to die tonight, or today walking out here, I'd drop dead of a heart attack or get hit by a bus, it's happened. I'm not wishing it on you, but it could happen. If that was you, where would you spend eternity? What would you say if God said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? Would you say, well, because I try to be good, I'm a good person, I try to be nice, I'm nice to my children, and I try to be nice to my ex, and I try to do what's right, but I don't know, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to, I ain't never been to jail, I'm not a murderer. God would say, that's nice, but it's wrong. That's nice, but you're wrong for that. I didn't send my son to die on the cross if you could save yourself by being good, because you can't be good enough. Your sin is an offense to me, and that's why I sent my son to die on the cross for you. And that's why you desperately need to repent of your sins and humbly ask for forgiveness and put your faith and trust in what Christ has already done on the cross for you. That's the gospel, and that's why it's good news. There's nothing that we can do to ever earn it or deserve it. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of our works, so that no one should boast. See, if we can get to heaven by doing good things, we up there talking about, man, look here, you know how much money, how much money you gave to the church last year? You know how much money I gave? Shoot, you didn't give nothing. I gave $20,000 to the church. You only gave a thousand? Shoot. Come on, that's a chunk change. Oh, what did you do? You know how many old ladies that helped cross that busy street in Wilson and Sheridan? I helped a bunch of old ladies cross Wilson and Sheridan. In my time, how many did you cross over there? You know how many times I went to the Monday night meal and I fed the homeless? And I left work early, a husband to the church. And what did you do? I never saw you at prayer meeting. I was at prayer meeting every week. Where were you? We'd be up in heaven having those conversations if we could earn our way to heaven. Pitting each other against each other. I'm like, well, you didn't do enough. Well, that's what I did. How did you get here? I never thought I'd see you here. All the stuff you done. No, no. See, when we get to heaven, it's all about Jesus. It is all about Jesus. Not even a little bit about you. And that's why grace is so amazing. Because not one of us will ever and could ever earn 
the right to stand before a righteous and holy God. And so God did all that was necessary through Christ to save us. And what he's asking from us is to recognize that we could not do anything to save ourselves. And Christ did everything to save us and therefore we must put our trust alone in him. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. That's the equation for salvation. So let's stand. And if you're here today and you need to put your faith in Christ, today is your blessed day. Just, I want you, after the service at some point, just fill out this welcome slip, this connection card in the bulletin, hand it to an usher. If you want to pray with somebody, I know there'll be some of our deacons right underneath this center arch. One is over there right now, and, and folks will be there, and they want to pray with you, lead you in a prayer of repentance and grace, forgiveness, that you can commit yourself to Christ by faith, trusting, believing that he did all that was necessary for your salvation. And then they'll talk to you about baptism and how to become a part of the church fellowship. Baptism won't save you. Church membership won't save you. Jesus saves you. But then he commands you to walk in obedience, to be baptized as a sign that you've been saved on the inside and your sins have been washed away. That washing on the outside in baptism shows that you've been washed on the inside. And then church membership shows that you're part of those who have been called out, separated from the world, now into the family of faith. And they will talk to you about all of that after the service. So just go right over there, fill out your little connection card, and let us pray with you and get you on a journey to wholeness, healing, of the most important part of your life that needs healing, and that is your heart, your spirit, your soul. Father, thank you for your word to our hearts today. Thank you for each and every one of us, Lord. We pray for our one. The one that are the ones you've laid in our hearts. Lord, make us faithful to pray for them. Give us divine appointments to see them. Or create appointments on our calendars to have coffee or tea or lunch or dinner with them. To break bread with them and to share our hearts. Lord, fill us with your love for lost people. So that we might love you and them enough to be moved out of our comfort zone beyond the fear that paralyzed us in the past to share you with them. Give us what we need. Help us to draw on that storehouse power of your spirit and words and your scripture. Put all of that in our hearts and minds to share with our friends and lost loved ones. That they too might come to believe Help us to fulfill our purpose, our mission, before we get to heaven, which was your mission.